We embraced. Tall as I was, I laid my head on my mother's shoulder, and she stroked my hair while I sobbed. Why? She kept crying softly, shaking her head. Why? I thought she was talking about Milton, but then she clarified. Why did you run away, honey? I had to. Don't you think it would have been easier just to stay the way you were? I lifted my face and looked into my mother's eyes, and I told her, this is the way I was. Why'd you have to start up with that one, man? That's a gut punch. Oh, it totally is. It's maybe the most honest thing in the entire book. Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful moment when, he, uh, when Cal comes back for Milton's funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Well, let's drink and make jokes. Hey, we, we, we might as well. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I feel like it's the quote that sets up what we wanted to talk about here yeah. today. And for those listeners who caught the first episode in the series, that they know that I don't necessarily feel that the entire LGBTQ nature of this book necessarily rings true. And yet, that one quote seems to be the most honest thing that is said in this book. And I feel like it's a good jumping off place here on the third episode of Jeffrey Eugenides' Middlesex here on Literary Guys. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. Well, welcome, as always. We're here at the Stardust Lounge. We're talking about intersex theory because what better for two cisgendered men to do in this day and age? I don't know. Uh, other than read sad quotes from <laughs> uh, from a, a book. I mean, it is a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. So, I mean, it's got to yeah. have some good text in it. And it's, it, it, it's a wonderful piece. And I think it's just a jumping off point. You know, we talked about this in the first episode. This probably isn't the best book or even a good book to read about the intersex experience. Uh, Jeff Eugenies himself is not intersex. He notably did not interview intersex uh, individuals for this novel. He kind of wanted to go in fresh and imagine it, which I think is his right as an artist to do, but that it's our right as critics to talk about it and think if he did it well or not. We, we did talk about to some intersex folks before we did this podcast, and it really seems mixed. There's some people who think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an admirable effort. There's some people who think it's atrocious and is doing harm to the community. Uh, we kind of just settled on a middle ground of a uh, scientist that we reached out to who is both a doctor who studies intersexuality and an intersex individual himself. He identifies as uh, him. Uh, Zi Shen, and basically what he said is, it's not terrible, but it doesn't get a lot of things right. It's better to just look at this as not an intersex novel, and then we can talk about it. And I think that's kind of what we've done with the last two episodes, but mm-hmm. we've, we've got to talk about Cal. We haven't oh, talked absolutely. a lot about Cal's journey, even though Cal is the narrator. We don't actually get to know Cal until the latter half of the book, mm-hmm. but I think that that's an important core of the book, and so we're going to have to talk about intersexuality in that sense right now. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the first... I don't know, maybe 80% of the novel. We're either hearing someone else's story mm-hmm. in, in terms of the parents or the grandparents. And then when we first get to meet Calliope, or at least when it becomes the primary part of the narrative, that we're essentially watching someone's journey of self-discovery. Right. And it's definitely awkward. I think that's intentional that Eugenides writes it that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. I think there are some interesting elements of that to to call out that, that we can dig into here. But the thing that's overarching that I, I mentioned earlier that does bug me is the lack of agency by Calliope that seems to extend for a very long period of time and doesn't seem to agree with 
her natural inquisitiveness. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's this dramatic shift in character. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people when they come out, and again, I, for, for our listeners, I know I am going to overly generalize the use of gay and lesbian particular uh, concepts here. And if I'm overly generalizing, that's my, my own fault here. But there are, particularly for gay men, there's a lot of gay men who, when they come out, they discover their true selves. Mm-hmm. But that's a process. That is something that takes time. It isn't something that just happens overnight for most people, unless there is you know some sort of other issue at play. And what we see with Calliope is this lack of agency that suddenly is followed by nothing but agency. And that, to me, just doesn't seem to ring true to any particular character core here. You know, and you had mentioned this two weeks ago when we were talking about this, and it's gotten me thinking, and I I think I would agree with you for the most part. Okay. There was one part of of Calliope slash Cal's journey that I did kind of want to address with you because, to me, uh, again, for our listeners, I identify as straight, so this is far outside my realm. I've always been in the majority in America in almost every context, so I don't actually know the full outsider experience that an LBGTQ plus member of the community may experience themselves. But one thing that really struck me as interesting, and I wanted your take on it, is Calliope slash Cal, I think at this point it's Cal, so we'll say him, he is basically saying that he didn't really feel comfortable as a woman ever, but he doesn't really feel comfortable as a man either. His decision, and he says his decision in the the course of this novel, was based predominantly on attraction. He was attracted to women. Mm -hmm. And the heteronormative dynamic of a man being with a woman just seemed to fit his own attraction levels the best. And that's why he now identifies as a man. And, And that struck me as interesting because, you know, without needing to get too personal, but I know you took a while to come out mm-hmm. yeah. as a gay man. And, and from our conversations that we've had, the attraction that you had for other men became so undeniable, mm-hmm. you could no longer hide it from yourself or from society. And that really was one of the things that kind of pushed you in that direction, if I'm not overstating things. I think you are, but no. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, it's definitely a, a major factor there that I, I would actually state it somewhat differently okay. to say that it comes back to that idea of authenticity, that you come to a point in your life where you realize that maybe it's a big thing, maybe it's a small thing, but you're actively presenting yourself to be someone who you're not. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is is very taxing and it is in many ways it's an ongoing trauma that exists in people's lives when you have to continue acting that way and so invariably it becomes not a choice anymore to come out and it becomes the right time for a person whereas you're you're stating with cal that choice was kind of made for him in various contexts throughout his life yes yeah his, his family raised him as a woman Mm-hmm. That uh, incident up in Petoskey, Michigan, and he had that whole confusing episode with, or episodes, I guess, with Dr. Luce. Yes. So I, I think I see what you're saying there in that perhaps when he is talking about his own decision and talking about his journey, uh, he is trying to maybe rectify the fact that he hasn't had much control over it until the very end of the novel. And even then, I would argue mm. that there's not necessarily that much control and and I feel like and maybe this is a, a function of the time in which this book is set 
but there's not a whole lot of what I would look at as healthy reconciliation sure. with, with his own self and being. And I think you do make a good point that the Cal we meet at the end still has many, many, many unresolved issues that I think if I met Cal in real life, I would highly advise him seeking professional help in yeah. order to move past that. Because in many ways, what we see is a character who's not dealing with a lot of this in a particularly healthy way. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Cal we meet at the end is dealing with it in a much more healthy way than the Cal we find out after running away. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to stop you right there, though, because as a podcast of masculinity, I do think it's inappropriate for us to recommend any man seek professional help, because that is not a very manly thing to do. Uh, I'm going to completely disagree with you here. <laughs> I know you're joking. Um, I, I am, I'm joking extremely. I think, it's, I think it's good for anybody, gay, straight, whatever your life's journey has been. It's, it's helpful. And one of the things that men struggle most is reaching out to others for help and opening up to mm-hmm. others, either friends, family, or, you know, professionals and I think you're absolutely right Cal desperately needs someone to talk to one of the great criticisms of from the intersex community about this novel is that he doesn't really have an intersex community of his own within the context of a novel he meets I think it's Zora maybe in San Francisco Mm -hmm. um, who identifies as intersex or in the parlance of the time from this novel uh, hermaphrodite but I I think that's it he doesn't really have a support structure where he can kind of talk to others with a shared experience and that seems to be missing in a lot of people's mind from this novel well I I will say and then we can kind of move on from this topic but you know I'd like to believe that things have dramatically improved since the time of this book being written or when it takes place but it's still undeniable that the the suicide rate amongst people in the and again i'm using the term lgbtq here is still extremely high far far above what the the baseline of the population is and i believe it comes back to unresolved issues and still trying to be someone who people are not actually comfortable being uh, so, so let's jump into a few specific scenes. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Like, as much as I, I feel certainly uncomfortable around some of the way in which the story is told, there are some really interesting scenes or snippets. I, I think the continued misdiagnosis of the physical gender, I mean, I say physical gender here, sure. of Calliope is is fascinating and it's of this doctor who comes over from Greece who right. seems to be pretty incompetent. I think he's drunk at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's it's set up as this like almost humor device. I'm not sure it was ever intended to be that way. I, you know, you might be right about that because then there's also that uh, when Calliope is baptized, she pees on yes. the priest, mm-hmm. which is, is a moment for laughs, but is obviously an, an, an identifier that the, um, the female genitalia might not be working as it normally would. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a good point. There are a couple moments early on that are, are played a little bit for laughs, mm-hmm. which I think would be very insensitive if that came out today. That's not a bad point. Then we get into the story later on with Calliope involving the obscure object. And I think there's a couple fun scenes with that. Um, One, and we'll come back to this in a sec, is the high school play that is put on. And the second is Calliope's first sexual encounter. Mm -hmm. In the play, which I, I don't believe is actually explained, I think it's kind of assumed 
the reader might pick up on the on the context of it. I don't know if you did the the, the story of uh, Tiresias, yeah, or Tiresias, I, sh- I should say. Are you familiar with the, uh, the the story of Tiresias? I was after this. The, upon my first reading of this, I went in and kind of dug a little deeper. Mm-hmm. So. One of the parts of the story of Tiresias is Tiresias was someone who was pondering the question of who derives more pleasure from sex, men or women. And through the course of this being a uh, you know a mythology, took on both genders in order to to explore this. First off, why is this? a play that a high school is putting on. <laughs> I, have a, I think there's a lot more to the story, but I know that that's yeah, one thing that, yeah. that's there. And so that really uh, that really intrigued me. But It's it's the R town of Detroit. Really. Yeah, uh, there you go. Every uh, high school it, does it. But there's also that weird play that's put on by the folks at the Ford factory earlier on the show or in, in the Is book. this the one that gets everyone in the house pregnant? The Minotaur oh, yeah. Labyrinth? Is no, no, I'm thinking the totally one before one. it. The one that's like the cultural celebration. Oh, that, yes, yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of plays in this. Yeah. Uh, it feels like, uh, you know, a season of Frasier. There is constantly <laughs> at the theater. Um, no, but uh, one of the other things that jumped out at me is that uh, the connection as well to one of my favorite songs by Genesis, which is called The Cinema Show, which actually, something like 11 minute song is specifically about that aspect of the story of Tiresias. So if you haven't heard that, but you want to learn a really cryptic version of the story (laughs) here, let me suggest the cinema show from the album Selling England by the Pound. Great stuff. So that was one one aspect, but then the other one is this sexual encounter that occurs Mm -hmm in the cabin. You want to kind of set that up? Sure. So uh, Cal, if my memory serves, is going on a uh, trip up to Petoskey, Michigan, which, by the way, is where Hemingway wrote many of his first short stories. She goes up with the obscure object, who is is her kind of, I think, first attraction, uh, more or less, and kind of helps her identify that she's attracted to women. We're using she in this term because Calliope still identifies as Calliope at this time along with a guy that the obscure object likes, and then his guy's a ragtag friend. Mm-hmm. And they are up in this cabin overnight. Uh, I don't know why parents would approve of this, but this it's happening. Yeah, there is a very interesting sexual encounter that happens there. Um, late-breaking news here that apparently this script about Tiresias uh, actually did not address the story. In fact, there's a quote here that says, My wild hair suggested clairvoyance. My stoop made me appear brittle with age. My half-changed voice had a disembodied, inspired quality. Tiresias had also been a woman, of course, but I didn't know that then, and it wasn't mentioned in the script. So... There we go. Interesting, uh, interesting connection. What great there. high school play doesn't isn't just rife with subtext? Yeah, there That's you what go. The audiences want. Um, so, getting back to the uh, point the at Pataski hand here, counter. yeah, that um, that we have this weird sense of a, a disembodied self. Mm-hmm. That Calliope is more in connection with the man in this scene, Rex, who is having sex with the obscure object. And in fact, there's uh, a passage here that I'd like to read. I floated above the little camp stove. Passing by the bourbon bottles, I hovered over the other cot, looking down at the object. And then, because I suddenly knew that I could, I slipped into the body of Rex Reese. 
I entered him like a god, so that it was me and not Rex who kissed her. Yeah, I can't obviously speak to the intersex experience or even you know the LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. experience in this scenario. But one thing I think Eugenides does really well, he did expertly in The Virgin Suicides. He does well here again. He explores kind of that nascent sexuality in preteens and teenagers very well. Even though I am not a woman and I have never had... You know, I've never had same-sex feelings for somebody at a sleepover or something like that. The sleepover that Cal has with the obscure object just rang very true to me. I do think sexuality is a sliding scale. There is some fluidity there, mm-hmm. especially when you're just discovering it for yourself. And I think this scene is even more impactful because Calliope slash Cal is learning something about herself slash himself in this moment. That that quote-unquote masculine role in a sexual encounter is something that is very appealing. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a moment of self-discovery. But again, this is kind of the thing about Calliope. Like, we see her as someone who questions many things around and yet doesn't seem to question at all Mm. what's going on in the scene and just kind of brushes it off. And I I don't know. There's something about it that just doesn't land for me. Don't get me wrong. It's a fascinating scene. And it, it really does kind of touch on to the awkwardness of, of sex as well as yeah, yeah. Uh, is so many other things. But anyhow, it's, um, it's definitely an interesting scene, but nowhere near as weird as Dr. Luce and just so much which is wrong with, uh, with that, particularly the scene where Dr. Luce decides it's a good idea just to show pornography yeah. to this very confused individual and that was just one of many things other than you know trying to make some sort of like physical specimen that all the other doctors can go gawk at as well uh, while she's there yeah he's this he's this almost haunting figure throughout the narrative of calliope slash cal's life where you you get these fleeting glimpses of you know Cal will make a reference. You you might see this photo of me in a medical journal, my eyes blacked out, you know, my genitals on display. I, I do know that Dr. Luce is based on a real person. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly uh, the medical community, while we champion them as these purveyors of truth and justice today, uh, they haven't always gotten things right, and they've often been on the wrong side of history, and probably many doctors were when intersex began to be studied. Uh, Dr. Luce, though, interestingly enough, because apparently Jeff Eugenides didn't say all he needed to say in the 600 page plus pages of Middlesex, uh, Dr. Luce is a reoccurring character for Jeff Eugenides. He is in many of his short stories, uh, including one where Dr. Luce is in some third world country with some indigenous tribe. It's been a while since I've read it, but decides that to understand them better, he needs to partake in their practice of pedophilia and takes a young boy lover and justifies it for science. I think this is a character that Jeff Eugenides clearly likes writing about, and I think he enjoys that this guy is always on the wrong side of history and he's trying to say something. So for those of you who found the Dr. Luce character, as I did, as, as I know Gordon did, absolutely abhorrent, I do think that's the point. I think he's meant to be a villain and meant to be derided a little bit. So I don't necessarily understand the writing style anywhere near as well as you do, having read his other books, but like there are a few characters in this that, like I was saying earlier, I, I can't figure out if it's supposed to be funny or because it's like so just wrong or if it actually is a tragic as you say villain my reading of the loose character is that he is tragically funny perhaps how 
poorly he handles so many of the situations, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's played for laughs, and I don't think that Eugenides is trying to say that, oh, what a, what a silly uh, surgeon and doctor yeah. this guy was. I, I think he fully recognizes the trauma that he was causing on many youth, and, and we see that trauma reflected in Cal and Calliope. Well, on that note, I, I gotta check. Do we have a sponsor for today's episode? Weirdly enough, we do. It's an old Genesis album, and you already covered it. Well, I would rely on Steve Hackett, the guitarist, who I actually saw just before the pandemic, perform the entirety of that album. And it was amazing, by the way. If you ever get to see Hackett and his band in concert, not sponsoring this, amazing. But it's really for the hardcore Genesis fan. I mean, you can't get a more organic plug than that. No, it's legit. It totally is legit. Anyhow, I feel like we need to be asking Edgar Bergamot to cover more early Genesis albums. Has he not been? You know, I think he's pretty much only done work after Duke. Um, I think he's got to go deeper into the catalog. I seem to remember you barging in here on our first day at the Stardust Lounge, slapping a wad of $100 bills on top of the piano, mm -hmm. pointing at him menacingly and saying, nothing but Steely Dan for all time. You know, I may have said that, which may have been confusing, yeah. given that I do also like early Genesis. Sending some confusing messages there, as all Yacht Rock fans do. This is true. I think at some point we're going to have to dive deep into my uh, obsession, shall we call it, with Yacht Rock. I will not be here for that. Well, you know what? It'll make it easier to record the episode if you're not here. And I advise our listeners to not be here for that either. No, it'll be part of my new podcast. Yakking about yachts? Yacht Yak. Yacht Yak. You know, we've got so much more to talk about the Cal character and the ideas of transformation that uh, are brought up throughout this novel and I would love to continue this conversation with you but we did go off the rails with your love of Yacht Rock as often happens and we've avoided mm -hmm. doing that for you know 12 plus episodes now so I thank you for that for your mm -hmm. restraint and uh, I, we, I, I have to thank Eric Bennett for the, the quality editing where he's removed at least four hours worth of discussion of Michael McDonald the mics were never on so that was just me talking you were talking in the Stardust Lounge well after closing with a powerless mic. And by the way, all the lights were off and you were sipping from an empty glass. We're pretty worried about you, McAllen. Okay. Well, I'm glad to know that people care. But, no one did anything about it. This is, <laughs> this is what's fascinating. Like you were concerned, but no one did anything. No one did anything. Okay. Well, on that note, I think it's time to wrap things up. Zach, how can our listeners stay in touch? You know, they can go to literaryguys.com. They can follow us at literaryguys on social media. They can look me up at Zach Kellyan. They can look you up at Gordon McAllen. We just want to have a dialogue with you guys. We want to talk about your love of literature, what we can be doing more to kind of bridge those topics of masculinity in literature. And actually coming up, not too far in the future, we've got a listener's choice where we'll be welcoming our listeners to choose the book that we will be reading and discussing on this podcast. So please engage with us. Reach out to us. We love hearing from you guys. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review if you are enjoying what you're hearing. Okay. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank the Stardust Lounge. Like to thank Edgar Bergamot on the piano, as always. And with that, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.